one more time and turn to Luke chapter 24. Last Sunday I thought I was finished. I told my wife I milked another message out of here. <laughs> Luke chapter 24. Verse 49. <clears throat> and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. He led them out as far as to Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. It came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. I've titled the message this morning, The Promise of the Father. The Promise of the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have together to assemble together to worship you. And I pray that we would worship you in spirit and truth, that you would be glorified. Help me as I preach, give ears to hear, hearts to obey, and may there be glory in your church. We do pray for being in our midst this morning, who have not received that promise. I pray the Spirit of God would convict the rest of their hearts and bring them to repentance and faith in thee. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The word behold find the New Testament, according to the Greek lexicon, especially in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, giving a peculiar vivacity to the style by bidding the reader or hearer to attend to what is said. Behold, see, lo, those words are used also. It is used when at the close of a narrative, when something new is introduced, when a thing is specified which is unexpected yet sure, when a thing is specified which seems impossible yet occurs. The simple, and it's, the Greek word is actually pronounced adu. It's kind of interesting, I thought. Adu is the explanation of one pointing out something. Something new or different was going to be received. It's, what we see here is something new or different was going to be received by the disciples after Jesus returned to the Father. They would receive the Holy Ghost as a permanent resident in their life. This is something new. In the Old Testament scriptures, the Spirit of God would come upon one on certain occasions, but never indwelt or remained a permanent resident. So... We see here the promise of the Father, and he, he grabs our attention with this word, behold. So something new is about to be introduced. And that, of course, is the presence or the residing in us who are saved, the Spirit of the living God. The Spirit of God, or we call it, sometimes he's referred to in the Bible as a, the Holy Ghost. The ghost. No, he's the Holy Ghost. Nothing creepy about it. It's reality. So I want to look at several things here this morning. First of all, as we think about this, I have, I have uh, three things I think in particular. Three things. 
Uh, first of all, he abides in us. Notice in verse 49 again, it says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Uh, I'm going to send the promise of my Father upon you. Of course, he's still speaking here, yet future, as of the fact that the Spirit of God would abide in them. If you go to John chapter 14, he also spoke of this, and uh, John spoke of this in his epistle in John chapter 14, and, and he, about the coming of the Spirit. And he says in John 14, 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. So, in the, and again, the word abide here, is, as it's used, means to continue to be present. So he's going to be with us when we come to know Christ our Lord and Savior, we receive the Spirit of God, and He is with us forever. He continues to be present. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up from the Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Now, two times in that verse, He says the Spirit of God dwells in you. Uh, and then in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? So, we see here, first of all, that this promise, the coming of the Holy Spirit, it would, He abides, or He dwells in us when we receive Christ, those of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior. I want you to notice the second thing. Not only does he abide in us, but he endues us with power. Again, verse 49, it says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And the word endue is only used one time in the Bible, and this is it. It's the only time it's translated endue. Now, the Greek word is used other places, but the word endue means... or it means in the sense of sinking into a garment. Sinking into a garment. Or to invest or furnish with clothing. Now, notice again it says, he says you'll be endued or sink into, and you're going to be endued with power. So when you think about that word, it's also translated other places differently. For example, in Matthew 27, 31, it says, After they mocked him, they took the robe off him and put on, put his own raiment, and that's the word, put on, put his own raiment on him and let him wait to crucify him. Um, Romans 13, 14 says, But put ye on, or be clothed with, or furnished with the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 3, If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Ephesians 4, 24, That you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So again, it has the idea of that we are clothed with, or have put on us, or have sinking into the power of the Spirit of God. The word power 
is the Greek word dynamos, where we get our word dynamite, and it means strength, power, ability. And it's used in different ways, and I'm going to give you all these this morning in the Bible. There's, I think, six things here that, that uh, uh, different illustrations of how it's used. First of all, it's inherent power or power residing in anything by virtue of its nature. Uh, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. In other words, the gospel by its nature has power. It's inherent. Power is inherent in the gospel. For our gospel came not only in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. It talks about the power for performing miracles. In Acts chapter eight or 6 and verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And so we're talking about power that transforms life. And it is miraculous. You know, some of us don't live anything like we once did. Why not? It's the power and grace of God. It's the power and grace of God. You know, that's a testimony to the power of God. The power to perform miracles. There's a, it also speaks of moral power or an excellence of soul. In Ephesians 3.16, Paul said that he would grant you, according to the riches of the glory of his grace, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Colossians 1.11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering and joyfulness. You know, God can transform an idol-worshipping Moabite woman, whom, by the way, were also known for their morality, into a virtuous woman, a woman of excellence, or Rahab the harlot. So it speaks of moral power. You know, he can work, so work in our lives to change our attitudes, give us patience and long-suffering to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Or it could also mean the power and influence which belongs to riches and wealth. And they say, well, I don't have much. Join the crowd. But 2 Corinthians 8, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote to, about the Macedonian churches, he said this, For to their power, their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive to give and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. See, the churches of Macedonia gave. They gave what was beyond their power, riches that they really didn't have. but yet we're able to give. If you'd have looked at that little, those churches, you'd have said, there were, well, there's no sense in asking them. They won't be able to help us. I mean, they can hardly make it, they can hardly pay their own bills. So they're not going to give a faith promise offering above on their tithe and supporting their own church. Because look how poor they are. But you forgot one thing. With God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. You know, how can a little group like this fund a $100,000 a year budget? 
sometimes I look at the budget and I'm thinking, I wonder how we're going to make it. But we always do. It's, it's the working of the Spirit of God. Or, or we, it refers to also the power and res, resources arising from numbers. Now we can relate to that. because we, We're really big in numbers here. Revelation 3.8 says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Thou hast a little strength. But he said, I've set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. Power. Or it could refer to power consisting in or resting upon armies or forces or the hosts of heaven. Revelate, or Daniel 8.10 says, Wax great, speaking of the horn, the little horn, even to the host of heaven, it cast down some and of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. And, and you think about the power or the, the, uh, of the, of the, uh, that the, the early church had, the church in Jerusalem, uh, you know, in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, the, the Sanhedrin said to, to, the, to the apostles, did we threatening command you that you should not teach in his name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine." And to tend to bring this man's blood upon us. Paul, who, who they say was, whose speech was weak and contemptible, and, 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 and from what we read in the scriptures, his appearance was not much. He was not an impressive looking guy. But Acts 17, 6 says, When they found them not, they drew Jason, certain brethren, and the rulers of the city, crying, These have turned the world upside down. Come hither also. How could this little band of ignorant and unlearned? Remember, they hadn't been to the University of Jerusalem or to the Sanhedrin School of the Bible and been taught by the theologians of the day on how to teach the Bible. Now, when it says unlearned and ignorant, it doesn't mean they didn't know how to read and write. But they hadn't been to the school of theology of the day. They weren't the scribes and the Pharisees who were supposedly the teachers of the law. They were not the theologians of the day. And yet there, here they are confounding them. You see, Paul's power and effectiveness was not due to his education. Though he was an educated man, though he did sit in the school of theology in Jerusalem. But he said that education, as far as I'm concerned, was but done. No, he said in 1 Corinthians 2.4, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Demonstration of the spirit and of power. See, it's not the theologians or the schools where we get the power or the ability to declare the truths of the word of God. I've been reading a book. I'm not sure I'm going to finish it. I might burn it before then. Nathan brought it home from a job that he and I worked on. 
It's titled None Other. And the subtitle is Discovering the God of the Bible. I guess I need to read it to discover the God of the Bible. I thought I read the Bible to discover the God of the Bible. But anyway, by John MacArthur, he's a theologian. And it's about the sovereignty of God and how we are not to question the sovereign decrees of God and how God chooses some to be saved and others to be lost. You know, I guess these fellows tried to impress people with the power and sovereignty of God, how great God is. And that may sound great and impressive to the natural mind of a theologian, but he lets out two little important details. Let me, let me read you a few things from this book. First of all, page 39, it says, quote, On our own, we would never choose to believe in Christ, but in God's sovereignty, those he draws without fail believe, unquote. Now, that's what a Calvinist calls irresistible grace. So if God's drawing you, you will not, you will without fail believe. What does Stephen say to the Pharisees? You do always resist. Let me say, let me say that if you don't resist something that isn't drawing you. And, and he said you always resist the Holy Ghost. Always. Let me read something else. Page 41, he says, quote, The Lord's gracious choice of certain people unto eternal life is just that, his choice. It is not based on human merit or exertion. So the Lord's gracious choice of certain people unto eternal life is just that, his choice. So in other words, God chooses some to eternal life and others not. These are theologians. And in answer to the to to a to to say that God's unfair, he said Paul's answers to those objections by essentially telling us in our own vernacular to shut up. You don't question what God says. Because the clay doesn't argue with the potter. And he's using Romans chapter 9, where it talks about God hardening his Pharaoh's heart. But I want you to just say something here. Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. But there's more. Let me try and wrap this up. Taken together, those three facts. Here's the three facts. Evil exists. God is sovereign. And he is utterly holy and righteous. Those are three facts. And I would agree with those three things. Evil does exist. God is sovereign. But God is also holy and righteous. Okay? So, so you take those three facts. And then he tries to combine them or reconcile them by this statement. That leads us to an inevitable conclusion that God in his sovereign wisdom allows evil to exist without himself being evil. Now that is true. As the final authority over all creation, God permits evil to exist. Now here's where we get into trouble. Not merely with an unwilling acceptance. Evil was part of his plan and eternal decree. Seriously? He has a purpose in it, and it's a good purpose. So evil was part of God's plan and eternal decree. Well, again, he left out two little important details in his book. 
You know, God does decree some things. But who will be and who will not be saved is not one of those. Nor did he decree evil in the world. There are six decrees in the Bible. Six. I give them to you. God decreed to provide rain. Job 28, 26. God made a decree concerning his son. Psalm 2, 7. God made a decree to establish the heavens. Psalm 148, verse 6. God decrees to contain the sea. You can forget about global warming. It isn't going to happen because God decreed that the, the, the ocean would not cover the earth. It's, it's in Proverbs 8.29 and also Jeremiah 5.22 tells us that. God's decree to deliver Israel in, in Isaiah 10.22. He, is, he will save Israel uh, in his time. God's decree concerning Nebuchadnezzar. There was a decree of the Most High that he would be deposed from his kingdom. Those are the only decrees in the Bible. You know, it's like these guys take Judas went out and hanged himself and another place it says go and do thou likewise and put them together. That's a theologian. So, you know, God does decree some things. There's a second little tidbit he missed. God elects according to what? His foreknowledge. And the word elect means chooses. So God chose me in his foreknowledge. What does that mean? God knew before I got saved that I would get saved because God knows the end from the beginning. And God chose me to be a preacher of the gospel before I got saved because God knows the end from the beginning. But he did not choose me to be saved. He did not force me, and it was not irresistible grace. He knew I would. He also knew what Judas would do. He also knew what Pharaoh would do. But all those miracles that were done before Pharaoh were an opportunity in Pharaoh's face to acknowledge that God was greater than he and humble himself. But God knew he would refuse. Because God has foreknowledge. Now you and I can't quite fathom that. But you see, Paul understood that. And we can understand it by faith because we have the Spirit of God. You see, God doesn't is not the author of confusion. That's confusing. You know, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And that's certainly not a sound mind. See, he's endued us with power. And we are to be clothed with, we are to be invested with, or furnished with the power or the ability or the wisdom of God to do His work. You know, so we should not ever say, we can't, or I can't. Because He's endued us with His power. 
Again, the, the word undo means has a sense of sinking into, uh, into a garment. Now, I'm not trying to be funny here, but the more clothed I am, the less you see of me. Think about it. And what the world needs to see is God in us. That's what the world needs to see. God working in our life. God glorifying himself in us. Go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Paul talked about this when he wrote to the church of Philippi. In Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1 verse 9, In this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Again, that has the idea of, of power, of moral excellence. That you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God. But I would you to understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident but my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You see, the world should see God working in our lives. Anyway, the Spirit of God helps us to pray. Romans 8, 26 says, Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, we know what, what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He helps us. He empowers us to pray. He, he empowers or helps us or gives us the right words to say in our witness. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> Matthew 10, verse 19 and 20 says, But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father, which speaketh in you. Now, you see, the Spirit of God can give us the right words to say in witnessing. You know, this is not an excuse not to study. 
or meditate on the scriptures. It is a reason to study and meditate on the scriptures. God can only bring to your mind what you've put in it. So you must open your mind to his word. You must study his word. Timothy said, in, or Paul said that wrote young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 15, he says, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, or the word exhortation could be preaching, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which is given thee by the with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. See, if you want to have, be effective and know what to say in witnessing, you've got to spend time in the Word of God. You've got to know your subject. And if you have knowledge, if you put in your mind and your heart what, uh, the Word of God, when you get out there and somebody asks you a question about the Bible, God will bring it to your mind. Years ago, a man asked me, what do you say to a man who says he doesn't love his wife anymore? What would you say? I was kind of dumbfounded. Because I'm not real smart. And I thought for a minute and I said, well, I think that you learn to love. But love is learned. Now, I had no scripture verses. I had no clue that that was, at the time, that that was even in the Bible. But this, the aged women are to teach the young women to love their husbands. You see, you learn to love those you spend time with. See, where did I get that? The Spirit of God gave that to me. It wasn't because I was smart. Because I had no clue. I didn't even think about it, being in the Bible. You see... If you've studied and meditate upon the Word of God, when you get into a situation where somebody asks you a question or the reason the hope of life in you, you'll have an answer for them. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul told Timothy again, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Uh, of course, faith cometh by hearing, hearing, and hearing by the word of God, and, and we need to study the word of God. So God, the spirit of God, can give us the right words to say in our witness. He also, there's just some of the things he does for us, that he, how he empowers us. He also strengthens us when we are reproached. In 1 Peter 4, 14, he says, If ye reproach for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he was glorified. You know, the word reproach here means to find fault or ridicule or disapprove of your way. Do you ever have people that disapprove of what you do? Your lifestyle? Peter said, if you reproach the name of Christ for being obedient to the word of God, the spirit of glory and the spirit of God resteth on you. Happy are you. I remember the 
first guy that I actually really made an effort to witness to. And he reproached me. He cussed me out. He wasn't being nasty. That's just the way he was. And, but you know, when I left there, I was happy. And I felt kind of awkward because of the, the response I got. That why am I, why am I, why do I have joy? It's because I was obedient to what God had commanded me to do. The problem wasn't with me. The problem was with him. I didn't have a problem. He did. So the, the Spirit of God, He empowers us. We are endued with power. And the more we yield to Him, the more power is available to us. You know, the question isn't, you know, uh, 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 how much of the Spirit do you have? It's The question is, how much of you does the Spirit have? Why don't you notice the third thing? Not only does he abide in us, he endues us with power, but thirdly, he directs our worship. Notice in verse 52 and 53 it says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. The Spirit of God directs our worship. I want to notice two things here. First of all, the Holy Spirit gave us the revelation of God. The Holy Spirit gave us the revelation of God. Go to John 14 and verse 26. John 14, verse 26. When I I talk about the revelation of God, God reveals himself to us in his word. So I'm talking about the word of God. It's the Spirit of God who gave us the word of God. But whose words are they? John 14, verse 26. I'm Verse 26, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Now go to chapter 16 and verse 12. Chapter 16, verse 12. Of course, remember Jesus is still present with his disciples, and he says this, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Remember a week or so ago we talked about how... They, they uh, you know, he, he kept reproving them because they knew not the scriptures. They didn't remember, you know, how they, they didn't remember. And so they couldn't bear it. And so, but, he, but he says this, How be it, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. Whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. He will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. Now, keep that in mind. Keep your place there. Go, go to Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to compare scripture with scripture here. Second Peter chapter 1, and verse 21. Second Peter 1, verse 21. 
For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The word moved here means it removed of the mind or to be moved inwardly or to be prompted. Now, you might say, you know, I'm going to write some words. What's actually doing the writing? The pen. The pen does the writing, but I move it. I move it. I prompt it. In that way, in that sense, the Spirit of God prompted or moved holy men of God to write down the words of God. So he brought these things to their remembrance, that which that's what Jesus said. He brought to their remembrance the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he also gave them other words that they could not bear at that time. That Jesus wanted to give them, but they were still. His words. So, the Spirit gave us the revel- gives us the revelation of God, the Word of God. And of course, the Spirit of God does not speak outside of or contrary to the Word of God. It's His own Word. It's the Lord's Word. I'm going to notice the second thing here. And the Holy Spirit also directs our worship in an acceptable way to Christ. Again, John 16. John 16. <clears throat> Verse 13. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. You So the Holy Spirit directs our worship. Jesus said that the Spirit of God will glorify the Son. He will glorify the Son. So he directs our worship to the Son, to the Son of God. You know, the Holy Spirit, you think of it this way, the Holy Spirit is part of the what we call the Godhead or the Trinity. Uh, he is co-eternal, co-equal, with, in power and glory with, with, the, with the, the Son and the Father. Uh, in 1 John 5, 7 it says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. In other words, they never contradict each other. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, the Spirit led me to do such and such. Does it agree with the word of the Lord? Because he is one with the Father and with the Son, and they never disagree. And he directs all worship to the Son. He glorifies the Son. I had a fellow say one time he was a church hopper. He was also a pastor policeman. He would 
go to this church and then criticize that preacher and then go to this church and criticize that preacher. And, and I worked with a guy for a couple years. So one Sunday afternoon, I went down to the barn to get ready for the milking, and I said, uh, so where'd you go to church today? I didn't. I said, oh. Yeah, the Spirit of God just led me to stay home. <laughs> I just wanted to bust out of laughing, which I sort of did, which didn't make him very happy. But anyway, I said, I said oh. I said, uh, well, you know, the Bible says in Hebrews 10 that we're not to forsake the assembling ourselves together as the man of some is. Oh, is that right? I said, yeah. And I said, the Spirit of God, who's the author of the Word of God, doesn't contradict. He said, okay. So if you had a spirit lead you to stay home, what spirit was it? It wasn't the Holy Spirit. All right, look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5. You know, and again, we're endued with this power of the Spirit of God. And, and I want you to notice something. That to show the equal with the Father and the Son, in John 5, verse 21, it says, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even the Son, so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. For he that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which sent him. So, so Jesus again here is making himself equal with the Father, that he has the same power as the Father. He can quicken whomever he wills, or give life to whomever he will. That's only something God can do. So we see the Father and the Son quickens. Go to chapter 6. Verse 63. Chapter 6, verse 63. Jesus again speaking to the disciples. He said, It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The spirit that quickeneth. Titus 3, 5 and 6 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By washing of regeneration and renewing or the quickening of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the Father quickens, the Son quickens, so does the Spirit. So when we say we're endued with the power of the Spirit of God, we're endued with God's power. It's another way of saying it. It's the same thing. You see, the, the Spirit of God is, is the regenerating power. He gives us new birth. He gives us life in Christ. Romans 8 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Verses 14 through 16 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You see, 
when we get born again, we are endued or we are clothed or furnished with the power of God. The Spirit of God that continues with us forever. Now you can quench him. You can suppress him and render him ineffective, if you will. But if you are truly born again, he'll never leave you and he'll continue, continually convict you of your sin and rebellion. The most miserable person on the face of the earth is a person that's out of fellowship with God. I'm convinced of that. Lot vexed his righteous soul from day to day. He was tormented because he knew he was doing what he was doing was wrong because the Spirit of God convinced him of it. So let me ask you this morning. Does the Spirit bear witness with your spirit? Does he bring forth fruit of evidence in your life? You know, if that power is endued or we are clothed in that power or and that have that power present in our life, there ought to be some changes. There ought to be some evidence. Does he prompt or move you in obedience to his word or don't you give any consideration to him? You know, are you led by the Spirit or yourself? Another way of asking that question is, who is the decision maker in your life? Or your authority? You know, if you have a relationship with the Lord, if you're saved, these things should be being, continually being proved in your life. There should be evidence. So the question is, is there evidence? Is there evidence? Do you sense the Spirit of God bearing witness with your spirit? Because when we are born again, He abides in us. That power is ever-present in us. So do you have it? Have you received that promise? Have you been born again? If you have, are you availing yourself of that power? Or are you suppressing it?